Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We have completed two of what will ultimately be seven parts to this Bible study. And if you are joining us midway, uh, the good news is all of the notes and the previous recordings are available through our website, and that is new-life-ministries.org. And you can find the outlines as well as the audio recordings for any of the previous studies. We have now come to part three, and again, if you are following in the notes, uh, we are on page 13. This third part is going to wind up our discussion of God's glory in the Old Testament. And then in the remaining parts, we want to look more carefully in the New Testament at what it has to say about the glory of God. Just a quick recap of things that we've already learned and seen. <clears throat> the glory of God is something that seems to escape a simple definition because the glory of God is always connected with God himself. And it, it seems to be the radiance, the, the revelation, the outward manifestation that can be seen and heard and felt of the living God and all that makes up God in his fullness. And we saw that the word glory in the Old Testament, kabod, is a very interesting word. It means weighty or something heavy, something very, very full. Copious is another definition. And so the best we've been able to put all of this together is the glory of God is the overwhelming weight of his character and who he is, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his faithfulness. You can make the list longer and longer, but it's who God is being displayed and being manifested. And we saw last time many, many scriptures in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord appeared to people. It's something that radiates. It's something that shines forth from God's very being. His essence is something that is seen and manifested in what we would call glory. Now, <clears throat> in this third part, we're going to see some interesting interactions between God's glory and people. And we've entitled this third part, Glory Gained and Glory Lost in the Old Testament. Um, glory is something that can be gained or given, and it's something that God can also withdraw or withhold, thus the name glory gained and lost in the Old Testament. Let's look, first of all, at how God himself gains glory. That concept is a little hard for my intellect to wrap around. Nevertheless, it's biblical. And God does things in the earth to gain glory for himself. And We'll start with the story of Pharaoh and the children of Israel leaving Egypt, and particularly what happened at the Red Sea. And there are other parts of the story that we've not included here, but uh, it's very clear that God chose Pharaoh for a purpose. You might ask, well, why did he choose him? He was just a hindrance to... Israel getting out of bondage and serving the Lord. Nevertheless, there are too many scriptures for us to ignore where God says, I myself chose Pharaoh to reveal my power in him. And in this next scripture, 
to gain glory for myself. So even in what happened in Egypt, what happened at the Red Sea, in the whole journey of Israel coming out of Pharaoh's bondage, God was going to demonstrate his glory and even gain more glory for himself through his actions there. Let's begin in Exodus 14. We'll look at verse 4 and then verses 17 and 18. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, the Israelites, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, after the Israelites, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, we've already seen that the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. Everything that God touches reveals his glory. Every aspect of creation is revealing God's glory to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. And every aspect of the creation, whether we're looking at a sunset, a river, an insect, the human body, how it functions, uh, or the billions and billions of stars and galaxies, everywhere we look, we see the evidence, the revelation, the manifestation of an extremely powerful and wise God that transcends our human ability to even begin to comprehend. So, God has plenty of glory already. Nevertheless, He does things, He acts in such a way that He will gain more glory for Himself. And the whole story of Israel and them being slaves for 400 years in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt, and how through signs and wonders and miracles they were finally released from Pharaoh's grip. All of that was done to manifest God's glory. In particular, here God is talking about what was about to happen in the Red Sea, with the waters parting, Pharaoh and his chariots and all of his army going in in hot pursuit after the Israelites and every last one of them being drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. God set the whole thing up. It didn't happen by accident. This was all a part of God's sovereign plan. And here we gain some interesting insight into, if you will, what God was up to. Here's what he was up to. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. And so God was going to be even more greatly glorified as a result of this deliverance that he would bring to his people Israel in the Red Sea. And we're getting ahead of ourselves, but when we get into the New Testament and we start talking about our walk with the Lord as Christians, many of the situations that God places us in, we grumble and we complain and we wonder, where are you, God? Why have you allowed me to be in this situation? Well, be patient. God is setting up something so that he can gain glory for himself. And you will have a greater testimony and you will have a greater revelation of God's glory in your own life. Certainly, if you were an Israelite, before and after the Red Sea experience, after seeing what God did at the Red Sea, you obviously have 
a greater revelation and understanding of God's glory. And hopefully, you would be more ready and willing to give God glory for what he did there in the Red Sea. Sadly, it says, in the case of the Israelites, they soon forgot what God did for them in the Red Sea. Nevertheless, for a few days at least, they were glorifying the Lord, singing his praises and acknowledging this was a supernatural event. God's power, God's glory was shown through Pharaoh and his army. A couple of other places you find this expression, God gaining glory or honor for himself. Isaiah 26, verse 15, referring here to Israel and how God was enlarging, magnifying the people of Israel. It says, you have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. So every time God acts, every time he moves, every time he fights a battle, every time he does something, he gains yet more glory for himself. When we come to the New Testament, we're going to be looking at an expression that is found several different times, the riches of God's glory. It's almost like his money keeps multiplying, his riches keep increasing. He's gaining even more glory each time one of these events takes place. Look also in Ezekiel 28 and verse 22. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Sidon, one of the enemies of Israel. And I will gain glory within you. So not only within Israel will God gain glory, not only in the waters of the Red Sea and with Pharaoh, Will I gain glory? But here God is about to inflict judgment and punishment on an enemy nation, the Sidonites. He says, I am against you, and I will gain glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord. Same thing he said about Pharaoh in Egypt. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord... When? Says, when I inflict punishment on her and show myself holy within her. And, you know, in these last days, as we see nations, including our own, drifting further and further away from the Lord, going deeper and deeper into darkness and all kinds of demonic things, trust me, one way or another, God is going to manifest his glory to the people in this land. It may be through their salvation and through their coming to Christ. It may be through God inflicting judgment and punishment on those who refuse to repent. Nevertheless, in every case, God will gain more glory for himself. And all the mockers and all the doubters and scorners and so-called atheists, trust me, in the final day, they will all know that he is the Lord. God will gain glory for himself. Now, the next part of this study we're going to expand on greatly when we come to part 7. And there, we're going to go much deeper into this aspect, but I just wanted to list some of the verses here to sort of lay the groundwork. We can give glory to God. God gains glory for himself by the things that he does, but we, his people, the recipients of his love, his grace, his mercy, his deliverance, his help, we can actually give glory to God, and we should. 
And again, we're going to look uh, much more deeply at this later on at different ways, practical ways that you and I can glorify God. A very interesting scripture that we'll come to in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So our goal is to ultimately come to a place where living, eating, walking, talking, breathing, sleeping, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it for the glory of God. Let's look at some Old Testament scriptures. And again, this is just a smattering of verses. Many, many, many scriptures in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, about glorifying or bringing our glory to the Lord. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. I like this scripture, and we'll probably come back to it later on, because it shows a, a dichotomy, a choice that we often have to make in life. Am I going to grab the glory for myself, or am I going to give the glory to the Lord? Here they were saying, not to us. It doesn't belong to us. The glory belongs to your name, O Lord. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Psalm 66 and 2. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Obviously, our lips, our tongue, our mouth, our voices are one important aspect of how we give glory back to the Lord. Psalm 69, verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 86, verse 9 and verse 12. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. Notice that. Not just Israel. All the nations will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. And really, this is one of the greatest purposes for our being. It's not to make money and become rich and famous and powerful. It's to live our lives for the glory of God. It's to be able to say at the end of the day, at the end of our life, I lived in such a way that I brought glory to God. I glorified the Lord. And we can make that a daily practice, a minute-by-minute practice, as I just mentioned, whether you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. First Chronicles 16, um, a number of scriptures here. We'll just pick out a few of them. Uh, verse 24, declare his glory among the nations. Again, being vocal about it, declaring it. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Verses 28 and 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. I love that verse. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. God deserves glory. It's something that we owe Him. It's due Him. Just like your rent is due on the first of the month, glory is due His name. Therefore, we should be ascribing glory to the Lord every opportunity that we have. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Verse 35, 
Cry out, save us, O God, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name, that we may glory in your praise. And in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, and verse 19, they, referring to the remnant of Israel, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. Many other verses like this, and again, we're going to wait until we come to the end of this whole study to look in depth at practical ways that you and I can glorify the Lord and give Him glory. All right? Now, <clears throat> the next section is extremely important. And actually, the next two sections sort of go hand in hand. And let me give a little bit of explanation before we go here. There are a number of scriptures, both in the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament, where we're going to see that God likes to give His glory to His people. He wants to give us His glory. But God's glory is not something that you and I are to take or to grab for. And we'll see in these next few scriptures stern warnings from the Lord himself. He will not give his glory to another god or to another idol. He won't share his glory with someone who's trying to glorify themselves. Okay? Nevertheless, to the humble, to those who walk with the Lord, God delights to put glory upon them. I know it sounds a little confusing, but hopefully it'll become clearer as we look at these scriptures. All right. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And again, the context here is to a so-called competing God, little g, to an idol, to something that is exalting itself and trying to usurp God's throne, God's place of glory. God will not share his glory with another. And that includes human beings. When a human being decides they want to exalt themselves, they become proud, they become arrogant, they become lifted up in their own hearts. God will not share his glory with such people. And we'll see some frightening examples of that in the next few sessions. All right, <clears throat> further along in Isaiah, chapter 48 Verse 11, God basically repeats this in slightly different language. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. I will not yield my glory to another. Now, I know we're trying to stay in the Old Testament tonight, but I, I want to read one short story in the New Testament that I think is appropriate. This is not in your outline notes, but in Acts chapter 12, there's a story given about King Herod and... <clears throat> In the beginning of Acts chapter 12, it was King Herod that was arresting some of the Christians, including Peter, and putting them into prison. It was King Herod who had James, the brother of the Apostle John, put to death with the sword. And it seems that all of his 
power is starting to go to his head. And toward the end of the chapter, we have a very interesting little account given here. I'm going to read it in Acts 12 from verse 21 to 23. It says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Remember what we just read? God will not give his glory to another, to an idol, to some other god that is exalting itself above God's throne. But here's what they're saying. This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Why this swift and sudden judgment? He had already killed James. He had already arrested Peter. It doesn't say immediately after that that the Lord struck him because he killed James or because he was persecuting the Christians. Something far worse just happened here. He didn't give glory that was due to God. He took it to himself. And immediately... He is struck down dead. This is a very serious subject, and it's something we're going to look at in quite a bit of depth in the rest of this part three. We need to be very, very careful to understand this. God wants to give us his glory, but when we try to seize it the way Lucifer did, I will set myself above the throne of God. Uh, We're setting ourselves up, just like King Herod did here, for the Lord to deal with us very severely. Okay? Why was he smitten down? The word of God is very clear. He did not give glory. Same word that's always translated glory in the New Testament, doxa. He did not give the glory to the Lord. Now, having said all that, as I mentioned earlier, it's God's design, it's his delight to give us his glory. He wants to bestow glory on his people. And I know that sounds a bit confusing, but I'm hoping you're getting the difference. We're not seizing it grabbing it in an arrogant, proud way, as did King Herod, but rather, because we're humbling ourselves, submitting to God's purpose and plan, part of his plan is to crown us with glory. Let's look at some scripture. And again, we're restricting this tonight as much as possible to the Old Testament. We're going to expand this greatly when we get into the New Testament, in understanding God wants us to have his glory. Psalm 3, verse 3, David says, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. So David recognized that God had placed something upon him. He had glorified him. He had bestowed glory and honor on David's life. Psalm 8, verse 5. You made him, talking about man, in his original creation, and more particularly pointing to the perfect Adam, Christ, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm 16, verse 3. 
As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The saints of God, even in the Old Testament, they were glorious. God put great glory upon the nation of Israel and his people. Look at the next scripture, Isaiah 17, verses 3 and 4. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites. Notice that phrase, the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. Nevertheless, it's clear that God put glory upon Jacob, upon Israel, upon his people. And then further along in Isaiah, chapter 58, verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and I'm sure we're going to return to this, at some later time, because I believe this is one of numerous prophecies that we find in the Old Testament that have different layers or different levels of fulfillment. Um, in this case, there's a direct fulfillment that is yet to come for the Israelites. This is a specific prophecy for Israel but I also believe it refers to the church, all of God's people, in these last days in which we live. Notice how appropriate this passage of Scripture is for our day. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Very clearly, God's glory rises upon you. <clears throat> See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. <clears throat> your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. And when we get into the New Testament, I think you're going to see that this will ultimately be fulfilled in the church, called in Ephesians 5, the glorious or the radiant church. This is something that is seen. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to that light. Well, they're not going to come to something if they can't see it. So this is going to be a visible manifestation, a visible radiance, a visible demonstration of God's presence in the lives of his people. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Jesus told his disciples, I am the light of the world. He also told them, you are the light of the world. You are light and you are salt. My purpose for you is to be a city set on a hill, shining forth for all the nations to see. God is wanting to bestow glory upon his people. He did it in the Old Testament. He'll do it in an even greater way in the New. All right, Zechariah 2, verses 4 and 5. Run. Tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls, 
because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So, God is promising Israel, I myself, my manifest presence, will be there like a wall of fire on the outside, and like glory inside the walls of Jerusalem. And, you know, we hear regularly in the news about all these nations, Iran and other people that are building bombs, they want to destroy Israel. Good luck. Good luck. The Bible says God will defend them. God will destroy all those nations that try to attack Jerusalem and Israel. He himself will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. The city will be filled with the glory of God's presence in the last days. Now, <clears throat> the next scripture is where we start to take a bit of a turn in our study. And remember, we've entitled this, Glory Gained and Glory Lost. We actually see both of those side by side in this next passage. Daniel 5, verses 18 to 20, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a heathen king, king of Babylon, but a very powerful king at the time. <clears throat> it says, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Daniel is actually talking now to Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. So this is not reserved just to Israelites, to kings like King David, even certain heathen kings were told God gave them great power and splendor and greatness and glory. Such was the case with Nebuchadnezzar. But, verse 19, because of the high position God gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. He was a world power. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. He had absolute power and sovereignty. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But pay close attention to verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. You can read about it earlier in the book of Daniel, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He actually became an insane madman living out in the woods and the fields like a beast for seven years, out of his mind completely. Because of his arrogance and pride, not only was he deposed from his royal throne for those seven years, here's what was actually happening the God who gave him glory stripped him of his glory. And I've put in here the reference to the story of Job only because of the statement that's made there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The same God that can give glory to Nebuchadnezzar can withhold it, can strip it completely away. And 
we're going to be looking at in some detail, and I'm just going to introduce it tonight and then get into it much deeper starting next week. We're going to look at a segment of Israel's history that took place prior to all that Daniel is writing about here with King Nebuchadnezzar. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel. And it's what I would refer to as the Ichabod disaster. And you may even recognize in that name Ichabod, the root word for glory, kabod, Ichabod. It means the glory departed. The glory that God brought upon Israel, we're actually going to witness step by step how that glory is stripped away from the nation of Israel. And ultimately and very tragically, the term is given Ichabod, the glory has departed from Israel. All right, let's at least introduce this tonight, and then I'm sure we'll need more time to go into the depth of it. But we need to get some background here. Um, at Mount Sinai, God established a priesthood. He set apart Aaron and his sons and the whole tribe of Levi to be his ministers. Aaron and his sons were the family line of priests, and then the whole tribe of Levi, out of which Aaron and Moses had come, was set apart to be ministers in the tabernacle. And from that point on, God had a family line of priests. Well, fast forward to the days of the judges, and you come to the final uh, chapters in the book of Judges, you find some rather sad commentaries there on the state of Israel. One is sufficient. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was basically the modus operandi of Israel in those days. Sounds kind of like America in our day, doesn't it? Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. All truth is relative. Everybody does whatever they feel. They believe whatever they want to believe. Everybody kind of creates their own little God and their own image, or they choose not to believe in any God. Everybody does whatever they want. Well, that's how it was in the days that end in the final chapter of the book of Judges. And historically, we then move into 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 1, <clears throat> we are introduced to the priest who's in charge of the temple at that time. His name is Eli. And as always, the priesthood was reserved to a family line. So we find Eli and his sons are the priests in the temple at a place called Shiloh. That's where the temple was. That's where Eli and his priests were serving, and his sons were serving as priests. And of course, one of the great storylines in the opening chapters of Samuel is Hannah and the birth of her son, Samuel. She, of course, was barren. She couldn't have any children. And so she came to the temple praying and crying out to God, for a son. And Eli the priest was the one presiding at the time, and you remember the story. He totally misread the whole situation. He thought that Hannah was drunk when she was there in bitterness of spirit, 
crying out to God in this deep, dark trial that she was going on, going through. And here, Eli the priest thinks that she is drunk. Well, that's just the beginning of the disaster. But we start to see little indications that something has gone terribly wrong in the priesthood. In Eli's life, particularly in his son's lives, and the whole priesthood is in great danger, great jeopardy. Let's look at just one passage of Scripture, and this is as far as we're going to try to go tonight. But this, I think, will give us some indication of just how things were going in the priesthood at that time. 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 13. And by this time, Hannah has been granted a son, Samuel. You all know the story. And once he's weaned and old enough to be apart from his mother, Hannah brings him to the temple and places him under Eli's tutelage. She goes back home and leaves Samuel there in the temple with Eli and his sons. What a place to leave young Samuel. 1 Samuel 2, starting with verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Verse 17, The sin of the young men, referring to Eli's sons, the priests, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. Please note that word, sight. God is seeing everything that's going on. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, little background. When an Israelite brought his sacrifices to the house of the Lord, the priests were there to help in the officiation of those sacrifices. And a portion of those offerings was given to the priests for their sustenance. They were living in the temple. They were devoted full-time to the service of the tabernacle. So a, a tithe of all that the Israelites brought to the Lord belonged to the priests, and even a portion of these animal sacrifices was food for the priests. That part is okay. A couple of things are wrong here, though. Number one, even the people knew that the Scriptures forbade any of the fat being consumed 
by the priests or the people. The fat of the animal sacrifices belonged to the Lord and only to the Lord. And in a way, I've always looked at the fat as representing the glory that only goes back to God. That fat was reserved for the Lord. No one else could touch that fat. But here, the sons of Eli have commanded those who are there helping, even before that fat is burned and given to the Lord, we want it for our barbecues. We want tasty steaks. We want good meat to roast. We don't want boiled meat. Well, couple of problems with that. They were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. In the actual Hebrew, it means they were abhorring, they were blaspheming, and they were desecrating the Lord's offering. This is a very great sin that is taking place here. These are offerings that sincere Israelites are bringing to the Lord. And here Eli's sons are selfishly grabbing those offerings and saying, no, 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 don't give that to the Lord, give it to me. They were the epitome of selfishness and carnality that can often surface in spiritual leaders and spiritual leadership. They were shamelessly abusing their office, their position in the ministry. They were demanding special treatment and privilege because of their position. And all they were interested in is me, myself, and I. They were fattening themselves. Now, we're going to have to dig even deeper into this next time, but let me go back to verse 12. It says there in the NIV, Eli's sons were wicked men. In the original Hebrew, you'll probably recognize this as soon as I tell you the meaning. In the Hebrew, it's the word Belial. B-E-L-I-A-L. They were sons of Belial. You find that expression even in the New Testament. It's never good. Because Belial literally means worthless. And that's actually how this verse is translated in some of the other versions. Eli's sons were worthless men. They were sons of Belial. They had no regard for the Lord. The New American Standard and some of the other translations say they did not know the Lord. They had no knowledge of the one they were supposedly serving and ministering to and for as priests. Didn't know him. Didn't have a clue who God was. And yet, here they are in the priesthood. Why? Because they're sons of Eli. And it was something that was a family tradition. Eli and his sons were the priests. Wicked, worthless sons of Belial, who did not know the Lord, had no regard for the Lord. That, that basically communicates to me an attitude of, they couldn't care any less about God. God meant nothing to them. They were going to use their position in the ministry to fatten themselves, to get all they could get for themselves. And th this has some frightening parallels for us today in the churches, and I think you can understand that. We're going to talk more about that next time. But God forbid that anyone would use their position in spiritual leadership, whether it's in the Old Testament as a priest 
or the New Testament as a pastor to use that position for their own gain, for their own profit, for their own advantage. What does it say? <clears throat> the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. One more thing, and I'm going to leave this for you to ponder, and we'll pick it up here next time. There's a big red flag in verse 13. Right after it says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests. The King James, New American Standard, some of the other translations, they say it was the custom of the priests. We need to be very, very careful about customs and traditions that can creep into the church, into the house of God, into the ministry. And there are some customs and some traditions that are good. They may be harmless. They're just certain practices that we've adopted over the years. But we'll look next time at some strong warnings that Jesus and the apostles gave about placing traditions and customs above the Word of God. Again, some customs are nice, they're harmless, they don't hurt anything, but beware of customs and traditions that can actually begin to take precedence over the Word of God and direct commandments that we have in the Scriptures. And so what was happening here, the practice, the custom of the priests that they had now adopted was violating the Word of God. They had set their customs above the Word of God. Why? Because it was a convenient cover-up for their little selfish scheme of getting, you know, all of the nice steaks for them to roast and the fat for them to have a nice barbecue and just fattening themselves off of the people's offerings. They were wicked, worthless men, and God saw what was going on. But it will get much worse before the boom is lowered. And trust me, this is a scary story when you see the final outcome. The way God brings judgment on this kind of sin should send shivers up and down our spine and cause us to humble ourselves, fear and tremble before the Lord, repent for any of this junk that might be in our lives. Selfishness, thinking that we're somehow special, entitled to special privileges because I'm the pastor or I'm the senior this or I'm that. Be very, very careful. And the story of Eli and his sons should be graven in the hearts and minds of every spiritual leader, any deacon, any elder, any pastor, anybody in a position of authority should study this story very carefully. Let us close here tonight and tying all of this up. Glory is something that can be gained. It's something that can be stripped away. God gains glory for himself through all of his acts. God wants to bestow glory upon his people. But we have to be very, very careful to keep our hearts humble, to keep our attitudes right, lest, as we're going to see in this story, the glory can be lifted off, the glory can be stripped away, as it was in the case of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we humble ourselves before your glorious throne. Lord, we fear and tremble before a mighty God. 
And Lord, we repent for any times that we have tried to steal the glory for ourselves. God, forgive us. God, have mercy on us. Cleanse us with the precious blood of Jesus. Grant us repentance, O Lord. And Father, as we move through this story of Eli and his sons, O God, help us never to repeat their same mistakes. O God, we humble ourselves. We come to you, Lord. O Lord, in the name of Jesus, wash us with the water of your word. Grant us pure and humble hearts to serve you in integrity, not for hidden agendas, not for selfish ambitions, not setting ourselves up as some sort of a privileged, entitled person above the law, but, oh God, help us to remember who we are. We're sinners saved by grace. And, Lord, let each and every one of us bring glory to your name. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, help us always to live for your glory, O oh God. We commit our lives to your keeping and to your care. Be a wall of fire around us and glory within us, both now and until Jesus returns in his glory for his church. Keep each one of us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.